KCF Technologies presents Industrial Transformation, Stories of Failure and Success from the Front Lines of American Manufacturing. Welcome back. This is the Industrial Transformation Podcast. I'm Jeremy Frank, and we are talking with a series of innovators who are driving change and we'll now be taking a bit of a focus into uh, companies and leaders that, that specifically serve the auto manufacturing sector. And with us today is Christina Keller, who is the CEO of Cascade Engineering, a company employing almost 2000 employees focused on large part plastic injection molding in the auto industry, specifically with niches in, in truck and bus applications. So welcome, Christina. Thank you for having me. Huh, did I did I capture your introduction properly? Absolutely. Great. Anything you'd add? Can you tell us a little bit about Cascade Engineering, and then I'd like to hear a lot about you. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so, as you mentioned, we have a number of employees across North America and Europe. Our key areas are in Michigan, Ohio, North Carolina. Texas and Budapest, Hungary, and we have a diversified product offering largely in the large tonnage injection molding capabilities with presses up to 9,000 tons, which is one of the largest in the world. Um, in addition, we have the capability to compound our own TPO blends for custom applications, and we have our own products in the material handling and waste area. We're a family business. Uh, we've been around for about 47 years. We're in the second generation and we're focused on the long-term health of our company and our communities. We're a triple bottom line organization, which means we focus on people, planet, and profit. And we publish a triple bottom line report every year. And we're also a women-owned business, uh, a women-owned business with two women and one African-American male in our office of the president as our senior executive team. And we're a certified B Corporation. And we use this process as a platform for measuring and improving our metrics related to people and planet. Fantastic. And those are, those are some of the things that really sparked our interest in connecting is a shared interest in, in some of those triple bottom line focus areas. But can you, can you tell us, I, I want to get into that, but can you tell us first just a little bit about your career trajectory and how you ended up as uh, how you rose to the role of CEO at Cascade? Absolutely. Um, so my background includes undergrad at Boston College, an MBA from Cornell, and my Six Sigma black belt from Villanova University. Um, after school, I, I worked in New York City and Washington, D.C. Uh, in various roles as a consultant uh, before settling back into West Michigan. And I've been at Cascade Engineering since 2010. Uh, outside of Cascade, I'm also on the board of directors for Independent Bank, which is a publicly traded uh, bank board. Paragon Dyan Engineering and our local economics club. Um, so my career trajectory uh, at Cascade, I actually did two summer internships uh, back in the 90s, one with our Cascade Cart Solutions and one in our HR team. And I joined Cascade, and as I mentioned, in 2010 as a project manager. Um, uh, I, I went from being a project manager at Polaris uh, in New York to a product manager at Cascade Engineering. And I helped them raise about a million dollars for a startup product in the social entrepreneurship space. Um, and then when the role became available for the president of CK Technologies, I took that role and went on to lead our Grand Rapids business unit and then became the, the CEO about two years ago. Fantastic. So, and I, um, you mentioned you're, you're a family owned business, but that's not, 
you, you're not, uh, you don't have roots in the family of the business. You you're basically have risen to the leadership role based on you, your work growing out of a product management or a project management role. Well, and I do hope that it's a both and, uh, but I am a member of the, the family business uh, from the family perspective as well. Oh, I see. Okay, great. Great. Well, that's great. So let's dive right in. I mean, I, I think the um, this triple bottom line uh, is something that I think some people have familiarity with. In fact, I have a good friend who runs a, a B corporation. And although my company, KCF, we haven't uh, certified, we just we share a lot of those values. Can you just talk with us a little bit about, you know, what what that means to you? You know, what it is that um, why, why you're a triple bottom line company and, and what that means to you? Absolutely. Um, and when I define kind of triple bottom line and sustainability, I, I really think about it as looking at the long term. Um, and when you do that, the social and environmentally environmental factors really come naturally into focus and you start to see all of your stakeholders, not just your, your shareholders. I think it's you can't outpace your communities or outpace your uh, employees for any long period of time. And so I think one of the benefits of being a family owned business is that we're thinking generationally and not just the next three to five years or the next quarter um, uh, financial returns. And so I think it, it, it becomes more natural um, as, you, as you look at that. I also think, uh, you know, we talk about it as a, a triple whammy in my industry um, in terms of millennials um, finding uh, work that is I engaging for them. Manufacturing ranks dead last in terms of what high schoolers uh, want to go into. Um, it's got a, a perception that it's a dirty industry, uh, that it's not very interesting. Um, and 52% um, uh, of teenagers had no interest at all in a manufacturing career. Um, however, when they're exposed to manufacturing, the perception improves um, and they're able to, to see some of the opportunities like robotics, 3D design and industry 4.0. Um, but the estimated labor shortage in manufacturing nationwide is expected to be around 3.5 million jobs as baby boomers retire and millennials lack interest in coming into this field. So I think it's it's a both and, uh, you know, we, we're involved in sustainability uh, because it's the right thing to do. Uh, to, to think about it, but it's also an important thing for us as a manufacturer to continue to look at how we can get people engaged into our industry when it's, um, uh, you know, not as uh, vibrant and, uh, and new as some of the other industries that are attracting millennials. Right. Or at least that's perception. That's, that's amazing. 52% have, you said 52% have no interest. No interest in manufacturing career. And in manufacturing ranks dead last among Generation Y in a uh, recent poll that they did when they ranked seven different uh, factors. It was the the lowest, seven out of seven. <laughs> so That's wild. I, I believe it, although it's funny. I think your perspective is probably similar to mine that if they only knew how cool it was, it would probably would be very different. I actually, I, I interviewed uh, Dean Schwartz, Dean, uh, Justin Schwartz is the Dean of Engineering at, at Penn State, which is where we are. Uh, just uh, about a month ago, and he talked about this. He actually had a series of videos commissioned uh, for all the different schools of engineering, and the basic purpose was to just counteract that same phenomenon that you're talking about, which is that um, you know it is it, it's it's a lot cooler than you think, and it's fun, mm -hmm. and it and it's it's high tech, and it's pretty amazing what goes on. Absolutely. And in that same poll, they said that perception improves when they're exposed to manufacturing from ranking at seven out of seven to three out of seven. So it, it is 
truly a, a perception thing, unfortunately. And, and I think, you know, as we talk about Industry 4.0 and how um, big that is uh, for the future, I mean, I'm, I love statistics and data and the idea that, um, uh, you know, we're able to use that to drive um, action. It's, it's, it's really, it's quite interesting and quite exciting to be in manufacturing, but it still has that perception of, um, you know, the, the black coal on your face and, and you know, working long hours and, and just a dead end job. It's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Well, hopefully that, that's one of the, the purposes of this. I mean, that, those workforce issues that you alluded to, you know, shortage of millions of, of, of workers that are needed. We're very much in the thick of that as you are. Can, can you talk? I mean, so, you know, our, our company is totally focused on industry 4.0 or at least you know, we just align ourselves with that term, you know, that's, um, it's just one of the terms, but it's just, you know, transforming industry, making factories a healthier, more productive, safer, using technology. What, how does Cascade interface with, with industry 4.0? Yes, absolutely. We, we have um, two different ways primarily that we interface with industry 4.0. One is through smart products that we produce and the other one is through smart processes and the way that we produce our products. And so in the smart products area, um, we have a roll. We uh, make um, over 40 million roll to the cart trash and recycle containers. You probably have one of our products in your garage today. Um, but we've worked on uh, ruggedizing RFID tags um, and, and embedding those in the cart so that we can work with um, haulers to incent recycling programs and optimize waste routes. Uh, which is one of the areas in which we've we've made our, our product smart. Uh, we also have uh, bins and pallets, and we've worked with embedded uh, embedded um, RFID tags on that for improving material handling. And we're even looking at embedding rugged sensors so that you can uh, sense during the supply chain if there's been an interruption of uh, heat cool cycles. Uh, this type of technology could be utilized for the vaccine as they're getting that out to make sure that it's uh, staying in the in the ambient conditions, et cetera. Uh, so we're working on, on those smart uh, bins and pallets. Then finally, on the product side is jumping on the EV trend with our automotive products, making battery cases and fluid connectors for um, the next generation of vehicles. And then from the smart processes perspective, uh, we're continued um, uh, in, internally focused on smart manufacturing, but lean processes are really the key. And, and uh, what I always say too, is any tech solution is only as good as the process uh, in which it overlies. And so if you have an inefficient process and you make it more smart, if you make it more efficient, uh, you, you could end up with a more complex system uh, than, than not. And so I think it's, um, uh, it's exciting to see some of the some of the things come to, to fruition. And the upsides, I believe, of Industry 4.0 in our business is that it's the next generation of lean and you can be more nimble and adaptable. And with the manufacturing talent shortage, it can help uh, address some of the potential worker shortages working forward. But some of the downsides are that, you know, the skill sets to fix the processes and the advanced technical solutions means having a deeper bench of problem solving uh, for more complex problems, uh, which which has a cost associated with it as well. Yeah, that you know that wasn't on my list uh, of of things I wanted to talk with you about, Christina. But I'd like to talk about that for a minute because I, I, there, there's a part of that that I find really fascinating. I on, on this same podcast series, I've interviewed some of the you know the the most well known writers uh, in lean manufacturing. Uh, and one of the things that's come up specifically with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Liker, who wrote the Toyota Way, 
uh, was that he he and a lot of his colleagues who are who are you know writers and gurus of lean view industry 4.0 very skeptically, and that's because it, it's you know it's technologically focused and it in a sense kind of removes the person from the the problem, uh, which is very anti lean, and and yet I see it the way you do. Well, it's not that he didn't see it that way. It's actually he does see it that way. It's just a lot. He, his skepticism was rooted in the fact that a lot of uh, a lot of people who are really promoting Industry 4.0 as a purely technical play think that the you know the algorithms and the sensors are just going to automatically solve our problems. And I think mm -hmm. he, he know most most lean experts know uh, better than that. So what do you what do you think is the ideal convergence of those two things? Are, and especially you running a, a pretty large uh, manufacturing organization, you have, you know, a fair level of control to actually see how this gets played out within your own operations. So how do you see that convergence? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, we look at it as aligned. We have three initiatives as our overall organization that we've been really focused in on. Uh, one is being continuing our drive of innovation. So customer driven innovation, bringing innovative solutions, providing value, reducing costs. The second one is employer of choice, having the safest, healthiest workforce with opportunities for learning and development and, and pathways for engaged employees. But the last one is operational excellence. And operational excellence is really, for us, it encompasses the lean journey and the journey towards industry 4.0. And it's where I would put this um, in, in the category as well of how do we, how do we um, look at our systems and our processes and utilize the data um, that's coming out of those to uh, make ourselves better. We actually had one of the first um, MES uh, systems. We, we homegrew home a, a system called MODS that gives us information on, on the basics, you know, OEE, scrap, and downtime. And we found that the more data that we have, the more trends that we can analyze, that so you can look at it by shift, you can look at it by press, you can look at it by, by machine, because you don't always know where the data is going to uh, tell you to look next. And so by having that um, uh, that information, that system, we were able to start to be able to predict where um, where issues might be down the road and be able to get from just gathering data to predicting uh, the future. And, and so we've been doing that for over 20 years um, with our uh, system that we grew. And now a lot of people have uh, MES systems, a lot more people have dashboards, there's all sorts of ERP add-ons and other things. But um, I like to think that we were some of the some of the earlier ones. And I think it went back even um, before the, the 20, I think we, we, as many as 40 years ago, we were starting with some of the data collection um, and, and trend analysis um, to be able to, uh, but, but I think it's, it's not the bells and whistles, it's getting back to the basics um, of the OE scrap down, the key things that as a manufacturer drive um, uh, inefficiency and waste, and then being able to, to look at those in lots of different and interesting ways. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Keep yeah, because a lot of the problems are are not that complicated. It's just that in my experience, they're blind. I mean, it sounds like you definitely have a head start on this. But we, I just saw a customer presentation recently. I won't name them, of course. But there's just so much low hanging fruit. This company increased their mean time between failures by double over the last 12 months for across a whole plant. And it's it, you sort of have to almost scratch your head that that's possible. That there's that much, you know, there's that. Uh, that much blind spot, you know, lack of awareness 
that it would be possible to change the way that you're doing things by being aware. But that's been my experience is there is just an incredible lack of information flow, especially about machine health. That, that one niche of it specifically. You see that absolutely. too? Yeah, no, absolutely. And we are buying some of the newer um, uh, equipment um, on our injection molding and, and really finding that we can um, that we can leapfrog with some of the new data that's available. But also, um, you know, we've been able to, to run pretty efficiently on our old um, systems and it's not all the, the, uh, this full suite of what <laughs> the, you, can, you can monitor. It's making sure you're monitoring the right data. Right. Nobody, nobody seems to have a shortage of data, right? It's a, a shortage of what, knowing what to do or insights or, or whatever. Yeah. Well, that's great. But so you're finding, you're finding value in it is what I, what I hear. Absolutely. In that. Absolutely. You know, it's, I mean, it's great. I just, I don't know if you know how rare that is, but it's something that we've studied when we're engaging with customers is that, um, you know, it, it's, it's increasingly pretty well documented that, a lot of the projects being implemented as IoT, IIoT, Industry 4.0 are actually not that successful. Mm. Um, and in fact, yeah, there's one study that we we uh, watched pretty closely where they concluded that um, only 8%, 8% of IIoT implementations had, quote, game-changing results or, or a powerful impact, however they worded it. Worded it. Um, which I, I would, I mean, from what you're describing, it sounds like you are describing that you've done initiatives that have had a pretty major impact on the way you operate. Absolutely. And I think it is um, back to those uh, basics, you know, the the OEE scrap downtime, the, the key indicators that can allow you to get to the, get to the point quicker. And, and I really do look at it as the next iteration of lean, um, you know, and, and the, the best way to look at lean as well is you have to have stable processes uh, so that you can you can build on those and, and just continuously improve. One of the things that I, I love about our, our founder and, and the culture that he's created is, is that it is one of continuous improvement. And a lot of times continuous improvement doesn't mean step change. It, it can. And I think that's where you're saying, you know, the game changing results. But it's about um, uh, a continuous daily improvement uh, such that, you know, the next day is is better than the previous day. And the next day is better than that. And, and so um, even if you're just chipping away at, at something, as long as you're not sliding back on that journey, uh, you're able to have uh, better and better processes and systems um, and results as a result over time. Definitely. Well, it may, you have me thinking now, Christina. I, I, I wouldn't be shocked at all. In fact, I, I, I think I would almost expect that there would be a correlation between the companies that really do get powerful results out of deploying new technologies and those that already have an attitude of continuous improvement or, or a lean focus, I, I bet you there's a lot of, of, of crossover there or, or cross-pollination because I, we definitely see that. I mean, we, we routinely go into factories where there, someone else has deployed similar technology, whether it's software or sensors or something, and it's just collecting dust. They're not doing anything with it. Um, and even among our customers, you know, there you can you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And you can give them data and even insights, but if they don't do anything about it, you don't really accomplish anything. Whereas a company or a person with a with an improvement attitude uh, is going to be more successful. So it sounds like you've definitely um, are living that internally. Absolutely, and we and I actually know exactly what you're talking about because we did a manufacturing excellence. 
uh, tour of, of best practices. And it was a facility we, we visited. I won't, I won't share the name, but they um, uh, had a, a very, very expensive system that they had put in place that was automated, uh, that brought the, the whip to the location just in time and, um, you know, had all these things. And it had broken down so much that they had abandoned using it and gone back to carts where some, they paid somebody to push the carts around because it was viable <laughs> than the system that they had poured millions of dollars into. So I, I definitely agree that there are a lot of trends of, of failed um, uh, Industry 4.0 applications where you might have gone a little bit um, more uh, robust than, or, or more uh, difficult or complex than, than the application needs. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I bet there's some, <laughs> there's some serious learning to be to, that, that's embedded in that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, yeah, boy, I've seen that too. You know, it's fine. I'm just, I, I, I've been, uh, the, um, it's funny, the, the interesting stuff are the ones you don't want to name, but I, I was at a wastewater, wastewater, trans, uh, wastewater plant in a big city and they were running their uh, big, it was either compressors or centrifuges, or I think it was centrifuges. And they had a very sophisticated uh, system actually from one of our competitors with lights, just, it was boiled down to just like red light, green light. And they had duct tape over the lights <laughs> just because they, you know, I guess because they didn't find them to be accurate enough. And so it was just viewed as a hassle rather than actually using the information to solve the problem that was surely occurring. Well, and absolutely you have a sensor that's faulty and it causes you to have, uh, you know, wasted product. You could end up with uh, more, more issues, you know, based on the sensor fault than, than the actual uh, in, improper product. Yeah, this is, there's a lot of examples of that. Definitely. Well, Christina, I want to come back to, to the, the triple bottom line thing. Cause I, what I, what I hear when you were describing that is that, um, you know, similar, so there's these 52% of people who, who, who think that manufacturing is unappealing. And yet we who are in it know that it's, it's appealing. So we've got, you know, Penn state's rolling out these videos to help show how cool it is. We we're doing the same thing, but for you, that you're you're aligning it with with the triple bottom line focus and basically pointing out that there's a higher purpose in it as well a higher purpose in doing this work is that do i understand that correctly Absolutely. I think, you know, our triple bottom line and the B Corporation and even the women owned business um, uh, helps us um, stand out a bit to um, uh, potential employees and be able to share uh, more transparently our journey and where we are on our journey. And I think people respect that. Um, uh, but also we've been looking at different pools of people. And, and one of the things, you know, as a nation, we have about 40 million people in poverty and 20 million people with former felonies. And unfortunately, those issues uh, disproportionately impact people of color. And we have um, so an expected 3.5 million jobs that are needed in manufacturing could be more than um, made up in those other pools. So um, our U.S. incarceration rate per capita is higher than any other country in the world. Um, and coming out of prison, people have limited opportunities. Um, uh, only 400 of the 9,000 coming out uh, in Michigan this year will have state-issued ID cards, uh, which means that they will have difficulty securing housing, transportation, and jobs. And many are denied even temporary jobs by employers because um, they might be barred from temp agencies. Um, so going back to jail is 90% less likely if a formerly incarcerated individual has a stable job and a home. And reentering citizens typically stay in their roles longer, seven years on average, versus the millennial counterparts, which are two years on average. Uh, so what 
we're addressing the labor issues through uh, prisoner reentry work. And we've hired um, uh, almost a thousand former felons since the start of our reentry program. Um, and we've got some incredible success stories. Uh, Jahan McKinley um, started on a projection floor in his 30s, and it was his first job since being incarcerated in his teens. Um, and he has uh, done a TEDx talk on Makatawa called Transitional Rebirth, and he's now writing a book. Um, he's, he's transcended to become a, a plant manager and a CES leader. He's now married with two young kids and leading some of our work in Brownsville and just incredible success stories that we've had from uh, supporting people and looking to uh, people who um, uh, may have been overlooked in the past um, uh, by the, the workforce. And so I think it's it's a both end of trying to attract and and court the millennials with our with our practices, but also um, give people pathways uh, for a career um, from from pools that that may have not historically um, been been looked to, and also in the process, hopefully solving some societal problems and and cyclical um, issues. That's that's fascinating. I mean, that, that's something that I'm I'm really quite uh, interested in as well. But al although, as you describe it, I haven't. <laughs> found that that's something we've not found uh, ways to like get it to work yet. What what do you find works? So you've got this, you know, you've got a huge population of people that have been convicted of a felony or living in poverty, haven't had access to education, and yet you have your own workforce issues, just like everyone does. How do you how do you get that to click? How do you how do you find the the right people and how do you get them interested and how do you get them prepared? Absolutely. One of the the um... Uh, things about this in the, in the same vein of continuous improvement. This is something we've been working at since the 90s, um, and it's due to, to our founders' direction of what we can do to, to help people. And so it started with a welfare to career program, and we actually ended up winning a Ron Brown Award for corporate citizenship for the work that we did back in the in the 90s. And, and, and we had three or four false starts on this program where we tried and we just couldn't retain people. There was a partnership we did with a local um, uh, fast food restaurant where they'd start there and then come to Cascade. And there were various different things, but they all seemed to fail um, from one form or the other. And uh, a big piece of it was um, uh, the typical things. It was transportation, child care, um, other types of, of support. And so one of the, the turning points in our program was when we had a on-site DHS caseworker uh, and the ability for uh, that to solve so many different problems. One was, um, uh, you know, there often are a lot of resources, but people don't know how to access them. There might be childcare assistance, there might be uh, transportation assistance, but um, the, the being able to access that's very difficult. Also, um, you know, when you look at our frontline leaders or plant managers or people that are the closest to the employees, uh, they may not have the capabilities themselves to understand where those resources lie. Uh, in some cases, we may not even be able to, as an employer, ask a question about, um, you know, your, uh, are you pregnant? Are you being abused? Um, you know, are there things that you need support with? And so, uh, you know, an on-site caseworker was one of the, the real turning points for our program. We did get uh, public transportation to come out to our facility uh, from downtown Grand Rapids, which was a, a huge help. And we're now working with the Wheels to Work program through Hope Network, where they'll pick people up at their uh, home and bring them to work on a regular basis. And the employer helps uh, pay some of that, but it's a not-for-profit. Um, 
And we have um, now it's evolved into the source, which is an employee assistance program where caseworkers rotate to various different organizations. So we were one of the first ones in the area, but we now have over 500 companies that are hiring former felons in West Michigan. And our recidivism rate is one of the lowest in the um, uh, country. So we've had incredible progress on this front. And some of it is that employee resource network uh, and the ability to have access to social workers. Uh, the other piece that we've had is our anti-racism policy. We have all of our leaders go through the Institute for Healing Racism and we do diversity theater uh, with all employees. Because one of the things we were finding that we were not retaining people is because we weren't a welcoming environment. And so creating a more welcoming environment um, through education and orientation and ongoing training has been another way that we've been able to uh, increase our uh, attraction and retention. And we, our, our retention rate and our uh, prisoner entry and welfare career program is up in the 90% uh, range and we've got great um, uh, success stories, as I mentioned before, in this area. Well, that's great. I mean, that the um, just on so many levels, you know, addressing just some deep, deep-seated societal issues, but also addressing the very real needs of the economy is it, just, you know, you put those talk about solving an important problem. That's that's pretty amazing um, progress, Christina. That, how has it been this year? I mean, this has been a, a year of some pretty high profile, uh, you know, racial tension, social tension. Has that put you in the forefront as a thought leader or has it made things complicated? How's, how's it been? It's, it's interesting. I, I like to refer to it as a racial awakening. I think that half of the population of the U.S. has been dealing with this for, for many, many years, and the other half is now awakening to the, uh, to the issues that are, that are addressing us as a nation. And so um, I think we definitely have a few more capabilities internally to talk about the, the issues and, and be open to, to have a, a, a dialogue about them. But, and we were written up in a, a Wall Street Journal article actually recently on the, how to be an anti-racism organization alongside with um, a couple of high-profile Ben and Jerry's and other uh, groups that, that are on this journey as well. But, um, you know, I think it is a, it is a journey. And I think, um, you know, a big piece of it is just being open to having uh, the tough conversations and, and dialogue um, and, and remembering that the, if, you, if you boil it back to the core of everyone deserves to feel uh, respected and valued within your organization and you keep it within your four walls um, without going into uh, political mires or other, other things and, and, and really bring it back to that core fundamental, I think that that can serve you very well as, as any organization. Definitely. I appreciate that. Hey, I'm, I'm also curious on this within the same uh, conversation, talking about, you know, felons, the, do you go as far as to directly interface with, with prisons and have programs that are, that are reaching out or how, how do you interface with that population? There are actually some great programs um, in uh, West Michigan that have developed as a result of some of the work and the pull that's coming from the employers uh, in our area. And so the Hanlon uh, prison has a training program. And actually, these folks get snapped up right away after they come through the technical training program uh, as part of the uh, the prisoner reentry work. And so um, uh, it, it's, it is exciting, some of the, the retraining and the focus on um, uh, technical skill sets, which are 
uh, in demand. Um, you know, maintenance, uh, for example, is a um, is a skill set that our our average age and our maintenance team is is getting up there, and it's not being replaced as quickly as some of the other areas. And so, uh, there are some training programs going on with the local um, uh, prison system, and 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 I think there's different designations of, um, uh, of, of crimes as well. And this is more lower end of the, of the spectrum. And, and especially now with the legalization of uh, marijuana, a lot of uh, the people that we are incarcerating as a nation uh, are somehow related to um, um, uh, the, the marijuana industry. And, and so it's just very interesting that they're not necessarily, you know, you put, you put people into a bucket of all bad who are in jail. And obviously they've done something to deserve uh, to be there. Um, but at the same time, there's a changing regulation and landscape, which uh, makes whole whole industries that, that uh, uh, used to be um, uh, punishable offenses are now legal. So it's, it's kind of an interesting piece as well. Yeah, definitely a wild time that we're living in right now, <laughs> but very, very real issues. I mean, this, I just, I, I'm, I'm struck by, the just such a uh, proactive approach to solving your own workforce issues, but the same thing we all face. I just hear so many companies talk about, you know, the retiring workforce. I hear very few companies giving examples of what they're doing today to actually solve it. And, <laughs> and I hear a lot of companies who just sort of, you know, think that technology will save the day. And, you know, here I am running a technology company that offers part of that, but I, I just don't think that's, I think what you're doing sounds like the better path is it's, it's technology and people together. It's not just technology. Otherwise it's just never going to be sustainable. Absolutely. Well, that's great. I, um, I, I, I should, uh, these, these interviews always go so quickly. I should start, <laughs> um, <laughs> wrapping up and I know your time is, is, uh, always uh, scarce. I'm sure being the CEO of a large organization. I wonder just a couple, if you don't mind, just a couple questions that I that I like to to ask when I do these interviews. The first one is the biggest problem. You know, you're you're doing some pretty ama very amazing things in terms of the triple bottom line, and also running a, just a very successful company, which in itself is challenging enough, especially this year. But you're you're knocking down some of these really big problems that are facing uh, industry and also facing these changes of technology and also facing society. What is the biggest one? What's, what's the one that you wake up and you, and you feel most made, motivated to solve that you wish you could just eradicate? No, I, I think talent really is the, the, the issue that we're going to have to wrestle with as we, as we move forward. And um, uh, along with climate change, I would, I would throw that in there um, as a, uh, you know, we we went up north for Thanksgiving, and there was no snow, and that's not a a, a crazy thing. But it's it's uh, we we used to go up thank, for Thanksgiving, and there'd be feet of snow at this time of year. So it's it, it's it's very interesting to see what's going to happen with our with our environment, and if that truly goes south, uh, that we have uh, no other options as a as a as a human race. And so I think that the talent um, and the ability to um, build bridges. Uh, out of poverty and and create opportunities for folks. That's what personally motivates me. And then also on the on the planet side, um, you know, we're working up to what we can do to to be zero waste to landfill. Uh, we're working on converting processes from chrome electroplating to 
films. We're working at what we can do to um, be cradle to cradle and really be part of the circularity of, uh, you know, people think of plastics and they think of ocean plastics and all of these horrible things. But when you look at a truly sustainable model, we bring back a lot of our trash containers and recycle bins at end of life, put them back into the product. And we actually have launched an eco cart uh, with post-consumer uh, recycled content and, and plastics can be one of the most sustainable and reusable circular uh, economy solutions. And so uh, trying to think about how we can be a circular economy and build bridges out of poverty uh, to create new uh, talent opportunities are, are probably my two two major things. Yeah, I, I, I love the way you describe it in that they're interrelated. And I do, by the way, I got to see some of the things on your website today. I do have one of your uh, carts in my garage, three of them. Perfect. Yeah, so thank you for that. But also just that you're already using post-consumer plastic in those. It is, it's uh, so much is possible, but you need, you just need people. You need problem solving people to actually make it happen. That's the thing Absolutely. that I just, I see that everywhere. So what the second question is, is where do you think we're headed? I mean, so you go up north and the snow's melted, but then you see all these things. And obviously we know there's a lot of, you know, there's just a constant flood of data about, you know, climate change and where the world is headed, uh, but also a lot of disagreement about it. And and then where industry, like if, if you look out 10 years, um, the combination of maybe talent and climate change, where do you think we're going to be? Do you personally think it's getting worse or better or do you, is it too hard to say when you look that far out? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I, I, I love sitting around and trying to think about what's going to happen in the future um, and, and trying to understand. I mean, it, it all depends on our, our actions, right, and what we do uh, right now that's going to, to predict that. I mean, I, I know at least we, from an uh, automotive perspective, I know electric vehicles are uh, becoming, are accelerating. Yeah, I think we've hit a turning point uh, maybe anticipated in 2026, where there's really going to be a, a movement from ICE to EV. And in my perspective, that fundamentally reduced costs and people are increasingly ready. Um, so I think that, you know, that's going to that's gonna be a big uh, shoe in this whole uh, climate change piece is if we can get people to electric vehicles. I know s solar panels are becoming more and more affordable uh, for personal houses as well as uh, uh, business applications. And so if wide adoption of EV and, and solar uh, photovoltaic, I, I think, you know, that there could be a, a true true inflection point um, in the um, uh, in in the world in terms of uh, climate change. I, I also think, you know, if more organizations tap into, um, you know, the 40 million people who are in poverty and the 20 million people with former felonies, and we really work to eradicate those problems, we can address that second talent shortage issue as well. So, I, I mean, I think it's really up to us and, and whether we, we drag our heels and, and try to do things the way we've always done it until uh, it's too late, or if we, we jump on and, and move forward and, and try to tackle these issues. Definitely. Yeah, the one bar, the, on the EV side of it, the one thing I would say is um, I, I've been driving a Tesla for the last couple of years and, you know, I... We're also monitoring, you know, the, a lot of the, you know, the big traditional manufacturers are really going all in, you know, these are serious plans to build these vehicles at scale. And, and we're, we're in the heart of it. We have sensors in the factories where they're building these new, you know, EV models at, you know, the big three, the, uh, I think it's actually going to go faster than most people think. Absolutely. My, this is for my own observation, but 
the, the one question I ask anybody that drives, you know, a, a full, you know, full on modern electric vehicle, you, you ask them if they're likely to get a, an internal combustion car next or stick with the EV. It's been for me, a hundred percent EV. You, you just don't talk to people that are interested in going back. And I think that's a huge indicator because I think it's going to be more of a tidal wave than a gradual creep. At least that's what I well, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, when they were the two trends that everybody was talking about, autonomous and electric, autonomous is continuing, but I think the momentum is stalling because fundamentally it adds cost. And I don't think customers are necessarily ready to not be driving, <laughs> you know, whereas electric, it really isn't that um, that different of a driving experience. We also have a Tesla in our garage and people always talk about, are you going to be, are you going to have range anxiety? But how often in a day are you driving more than 300 miles? And plus you never uh, have a, to, to fill up your tank just on a regular basis because you leave each morning with a full 300 tank, 300 miles or however long you need to go. And so people don't talk about that either of the fact that, you know, you wake up each morning with a, with a full tank of gas. Totally. I have gas station anxiety. That's what I always say. You know, really, if you, if you just, if you were used to this way of doing it and had never been exposed to it, you going and waiting in line and pumping at a gas station, I have serious anxiety about that. And also not being able to go zero to 60 in two and a half seconds. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. Just it's, it's convenient that they're, they're also better. Yeah. Well, that's great. I love that, that painting of the picture, Christina. I really, I mean, especially you're just, there's a lot of people who have ideas, but you're actually, um, you're doing these things for a big company. And I just, I really commend you for the, the things that you're doing across the board, the talent workforce thing, uh, and, and just being on the right side of, you know, implementing these engineering changes that can actually solve problems. It's, it's, um, it's wonderful to hear. I, one last question I, I like to ask the, can you tell me something that, that you, uh, that you hold to be true, something that's a truth to you that most people would disagree with you about? Hmm. Well, I, 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 uh, unfortunately, I still think that the mentality of triple bottom line is something that people, there's not a fundamental agreement on it yet. I, I think when I talk to people, I mean, I, I am passionate about balancing people, planet, and profit. And they'll never be in a complete balance, but we want to better our people, we wanna better our planet, and we wanna better our profitability. And so often I hear people talk about it as if it's a trade-off. And as to better your people and planet, you have to donate or you have to give up of your bottom line and that it cannot be a both and. I think people are very black or white and would fight me on, you know, uh, you know, you can't have good people in good environment without sacrificing your profitability. And and what I think, you know, even what you're saying about with the electric vehicle trend, other things, it, it look at Elon Musk. I mean, he's not pr- sacrificing profitability uh, to be better for the environment. And other things. And, and so I, I hope that that starts to change, that people start to see that, you know, doing these things and balancing the three and, and having a focus on it it's not a trade-off, but that they can be reinforcing. And I think that's something that I hold true that I, I don't think everybody is on the same page with yet. I think I think that's a great answer. I mean, I would, you know, I want to, I want to agree with you, but the, the truth is that it's hard. Yeah. It, it's really hard to commit and believe. I actually, I have a, a, a group of CEOs that I get together with and I have a real good friend. His name's Scott Woods. He runs a company called Westerett Software. And he's a certified B Corp and has been for years and is really committed to triple bottom line. And he talks to us about it. 
routinely and and yet it's a very difficult thing to commit yourself to it's like a leap of faith i think and i had one that i haven't made yet so i just i really (laughs) appreciate having a chance to talk to you and i i think it's an amazing story that people need to hear Absolutely. Well, thank you for helping us uh, get the word out there and and um, continue to to spread the uh, the journey. And and it's it's great what you're doing. I think your podcasts are are fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Nope, that's it. Wonderful. Well, Christina, this has been a real pleasure talking with you today. Uh, this is Jeremy Frank, and it's the Industrial Transformation Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Industrial Transformation Podcast, a production of Business Builders Media. Learn more about how KCF can help you on your industrial transformation journey at kcftech.com. And check out more shows on businessbuildersmedia.com.